Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. Presented by SeatGeek, the best way to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone today and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 2nd, 2018. Man, do we have a jam-packed show for you this week. One of our special guests is outfielder for the Winston-Salem Dash, Blake Rutherford. Blake shares what has changed for him this season at the plate and his approach with runners in scoring position where he's been really successful in 2018 and his relationship with fellow top prospect Luis Robert. We'll also be joined by our good friend of the podcast, Will Carroll. With arm injuries seemingly piling up for the White Sox, Will explains what is actually going on with these injuries for Dane Dunning and Nate Jones and why the White Sox are opting for rest and rehab rather than have the pitchers go under the knife right away. Of course, we'll have the minor league reports and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But with the first half of 2018 already over, You, our fans and listeners, have helped us in a big way by participating in our first half survey as you got a chance to grade the White Sox after the first 81 games. 600 of you submitted a survey and your grades for the first half. And joining me to share his grades and announce what the final results were is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Before we talk about the survey, we got to talk about what everybody else in the world is is chatting about, and it's about LeBron James. Are you shocked that LeBron James would sign with the Lakers? No, only because it was basically announced before free agency. It's really fascinating. I was watching last night uh, on ESPN um, uh, Rachel Nichols' show, and basically like, the first hours of free agency, I think there were like a dozen signings uh, within minutes, and... 
it's just it's fascinating the the pace of the NBA offseason and and how it you know compares to you know the the hot stove season the idea of the hot stove season unrolling you know unfolding after like say two months although now it's like a four or five month thing um, you know versus the NBA which comes basically everything is done within the first three or four days and and uh, Rachel Nichols is going off about you know just how ridiculous the whole anti-tampering thing is or like the <laughs> the idea that none of these teams are tampering and every deal is struck at uh, 12.05 after a first round of negotiations and it's really bizarre but fascinating in its own way yeah it's totally different right different than baseball baseball is the slowest because yeah. the nfl is somewhat similar like the nfl once once it is free agency hits it moves in a hurry yeah it's like about like a week or two right right even hockey hockey the blackhawks quickly made free agent <laughs> signings right away it doesn't happen in baseball. Everyone takes their time now. But yeah, which I, I kind of like, you know, or I kind of like the the normal pace of an off season, you know, where some deals are done in November, some in December, then some stragglers in January. I, I don't care for this, you know, last winter where nothing happened until uh, at least, you know, there was never any kind of flurry of activities. It was mainly kind of spread out over December, January, and then like even to early March, which is far less ideal. I can't pretend to know anything about the NBA or speak about the NBA, but I do wonder, Jim, that let's say if there was a similar situation where in baseball, one of the leagues was loaded like the Western Conference, obviously with LeBron James signing with the Lakers and now having to be in the same conference as Golden State, the Western Conference is far superior than the Eastern Conference. If baseball had a situation where the American League was far superior than the National League, would that ruin baseball? No, I I think uh, there was a situation kind of similar to that uh, last decade when the Yankees and Red Sox are doing all spending. You had the Angels flexing their their uh, wallets and the Rangers and you know the AL Central leg behind, but in the National League, you know the Dodgers were in turmoil ownership wise. The Mets were underpowered, the Cubs were rebuilding, and so there really wasn't a juggernaut spending. So the the AL was attracting a lot of the talent. And now I think that's kind of evened out with the Cubs um, you know, riding their wave of success and the Dodgers spending endless amounts of money. And now the Braves rebuild taking shape. You know, the, the Phillies spending again. So I think it's kind of balancing out. But I think with the uh, you know just do the difference in sports, you know, the fact that you know, Mike Trout is the best player in the game, but can't drag a team to the playoffs by himself. I think that effect is largely muted over, you know, what interleague play is then, you know, when they meet in the World Series. Well, that's the NBA talk for this season of the podcast. Uh, let's talk about the first half as the White Sox are on pace to lose 106 games in 2018. Woo! We asked you our fans, listeners, many questions about the first half. And we're going to share those results while also giving our thoughts. So starting with the very first question we asked you, what grade would you give the White Sox for the first half play? And Jim, do you have a grade for the White Sox after the first 81 games? I think it has to be an F. (laughs) If you're challenging for the most losses in franchise history, that is basically the textbook definition of failure. Yeah, I agree with you on the F. Surprisingly, 56.3% gave the White Sox a D. There are more people who gave the White Sox a C than an F, which Hmm. is interesting. Now, I could see where you can make the case that, hey, 
The progression of Tim Anderson and Ronaldo Lopez prevents the season be from becoming a total failure. And I can I can buy that, but I agree with you, Jim. When you are on pace to lose 106 games, that's enough. I, I don't there's just not enough progression from all the young talent mm-hmm. to prevent a devastating season like this. And typically, as I wrote on Sunday about five college players that you could follow this summer for the 2019 Major League Baseball draft, 106 losses would get you the number one pick in most years. It won't. In 2019, it'll get you third because Baltimore's on pace to lose 116 games and Kansas City is on pace to lose 112. And the and the Royals went five and twenty-one in June. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so I mean, they're not they they're playing the worst baseball now. They uh they played too well, I guess, in April and May and are catching up. But yeah, that I'm kind of counting on the third pick at this point, just because it looks like neither team is you know, below them has any real upward mobility, especially say if the Orioles trade Manny Machado. Yeah, then it's gonna get worse. What what year was it the Tigers lost 120 games? 03, 04? They're going to challenge that. I think it was 03 because I think the White Sox were that was a that was a year where the White you know, the, the Twins just uh pounded the Tigers and the White Sox were yeah, I think they were 11 and 8 or something against them like did not take advantage of their historical uh, awfulness whereas in uh, 2004 injuries killed the White Sox of that year. So I think it was 2003. Well, the next question the survey. So again, 56% of you gave the White Sox a D. Jim and I give them an F. What is your level of confidence with one not being confident, three being somewhat confident, and five very confident the White Sox rebuild will bring a playoff contending team by 2020? One through five, Jim, where would you rank yourself? I would say two. I think it would go I think it would go up to four if you said 2021, but Right now, I think 2020 might be the first year where they're over 500, and that might not get them there, especially if the wild cards are as tough as they look this year. What is the difference between 2020 and 2021 for you, where you would be, instead of a two, a four? I think just the you know, progression of players. Um, you know, Yohan Moncada right now looks like his learning curve is a bit steeper than people anticipated. Um, you know, Eloy Jimenez is not yet here Michael Kopech's not yet here and so forth so I think you know if right now with, with Mankata and the guys going through their first full seasons like Lopez and Giolito my attitude towards them is you know wait to see what they look like in September grade them at the end of the year like you know like I did with Tim Anderson last year and so I think if you look at 2019 it's kind of the same thing where it's just kind of you write off the results for Jimenez and Kopech and whoever else is you know making that journey the first six months you know uh first six month journey through the big leagues for them and all the adjustments they have to make so you write off their results for 2019. So I think 2020 is the first year where you, know, you expect the talent to kind of consolidate and come together into a, a functioning team. And you know, the Cubs did it. I think the Cubs sped up that year in a hurry where they went from you know on the verge of being a contender to winning 90-something games. I don't know if the White Sox have that jump in them you know, unless they, you know, they open up their wallets. Uh, you know, and time a buy that well. But right now, I think knowing what we know and having an idea of how the White Sox typically spend, I wouldn't count on them making that jump um, in one year in 2020. I'm a three. I'm on the fence. 
I could see where if everything clicks, the White Sox could have a season like the Atlanta Braves are currently experiencing. Does With the start that the Atlanta Braves are having, does that going to result in a National League East title or a wild card spot? I don't know. They have a lot of competition right now in the National League, where it seems like in the American League, we know who the five playoff teams are at the moment, as the Seattle Mariners have a very healthy lead with the second wild card. And I think that's where I'm on the fence. And that's why I put myself as a three. With the results, that three was the most common. 36% gave them a three. 34.7% said that they are a four. So a little bit more confident still and holding belief that the White Sox can be a contending team in 2020. However, Jim, where you were at, at two out of five, 12.2% agree with you. That's more than people who are a five, which was just 11%. So I think there's a lot of White Sox fans that are either on the fence or slightly over the fence and still remain optimistic. But I wonder where this is going to shift when we do this in a year from now for the 2019 season if the White Sox don't start off well. I'm thinking it's going to shift to the left pretty, pretty big. Well, you brought up the Braves, and, and that could be a situation where, you know, you look at the league and the White Sox might not be one of the five best teams in the league, but if the Indians are having to make tough decisions about their payroll and the Twins never quite get it together, the Central could be weak enough to where the White Sox are divisional contenders, if not league-wide contenders. So that's, I guess, what I'm looking for for that 2020 is just the strength of the division because, you know, if the Indians are still as good as they are, and the Twins get it together after a pretty big stumble this year, then you know perhaps they'll be out of reach. But uh, given what we know about you know you know we talk about the White Sox spending habits, the Indians really don't spend that much. The, tw- uh, the Twins have always kind of come up short, so the division could be there if none of these teams ahead of them, you know, really are able to. Either in the Indians' case, they have to. Uh, uh, let some players go payroll-wise and have to bank on younger players who might not be ready, or the Twins just never quite putting together a cohesive team that can compete for more than a wildcard appearance. The next question is, what grade would you give manager Rick Renteria for his work in the first half? I can start. I'm giving Rick Renteria a C. I can understand some people saying D or F because, yes, the bunting does make me upset, and yes, Some of the ways that he's been handling the bullpen does make me upset. I'm giving him a C because I'm still giving him the benefit of the doubt because there's just not a lot of talent. And I think I like the decision that he made that he opted for defense in the outfield and he did sacrifice offense, but it did pay off for a 30-game stretch where the White Sox were 500 and now they're back to stumbling again. And I'm sure my mind will change in the second half. But right now, at least through the first 81 games and from the work that he did in 2017, I still, I feel I'm in the position, Jim, where I'm in Rick, I'm giving Rick Renteria a grace period, but that grace period will end after this season. I'd give him a C minus um, just because I think there's, you know, if, if you were a B manager, let's say if you were, you know, we felt like great about his, you know, we couldn't second guess anything he did. There were no, you know, roster infighting and such. I don't know if it'd make much of a difference. Um, you know, so that's why I think penals gave him an F and uh, 
that strikes me as too much in that direction. Um, but yeah, the team, if you take the team's play as a reflection of his, um, you know, his leadership and, and just the sloppiness in the field and, and the mental mistakes and, and the lack of technique sometimes shown, then I would say that, you know, Rick Renteria and the staff, um, you know, they're, they're below average and, you know, the kind of, there's, there's a, been a dent put in the Ricky's boys don't quit mystique, but when it comes to any kind of, um, you know, significant, um, playing time issues or anything like that, you know, like, um, bullpen order lineups, I really don't see anything chronically wrong or anything he's doing. He's not putting players in a position to fail. Um, you know, uh, at least <laughs> there are a lot of players who are there by default just because of injuries and such, but he's not, he's trying to do his best to put major league players in those positions. And now that Avi's back and Larry's back, we'll see if Larry hangs around, but, um, you know, there's, there's a bit more his disposal and things are kind of calming down that way. So, uh, when it comes to the kind of, uh, I guess, critical mistakes a manager makes, he's not making those. So I would say C minus just based on the quality of play that seems like it's kind of teachable slash coachable, but, um, yeah, otherwise it's still like a, a better manager or a more, yeah, I guess, but yeah, what do you want to call it? Orthodox manager, you know, saber friendly manager, uh, really wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. 50.7% of the fans and listeners gave Renteria a C. 21.8% gave Renteria a D. 21.2% gave Renteria a B. So a little bit of a, a little spectrum right there. So most of you gave Rick Renteria a C. The next question was, who was the best position player for the first half? And Jim, what would be your pick? Tim Anderson. That's who I went with. We don't have a lot of people in our camp. (laughs) 18.5% also picked Tim Anderson. Overwhelmingly at 57.5% was Jose Abreu. And I think the last month and his struggles, and yes, he did have a very good game on Sunday with the three runs batted in. Terrific. I hope that leads to a great month of July and August like he has in his career. But the past month, Jim, I can't ignore that. And that's why Abreu is not the best position player, in my opinion. Yeah, it was the worst month of his career. And, you know, it dinged his numbers accordingly. And... When you fact that, and then with some of the, you know, I guess he's not the most, um, you know, capable defender at first base, and especially you were talked about, you know, the the avoidable mistakes and you know, the mistakes he makes with his stretches, and the way he doesn't kind of time them and or or guide them in the right direction to the ball and and the few balls he's messed up that way, just you know, takes a little bit of the uh, the shine off it, or at least makes it a little less forgiving when you look at the way his offense is has dropped off in June, so. You know, Anderson, I think, well, yeah, I think that Anderson, there's just, for whatever reason, a major stigma around his errors at shortstop, and I really don't get it. I don't, I don't get why people are so hung up on the errors he makes there. He makes plays that other shortstops can't. He's got terrific range. And it's, yeah, and it's calmed down, the errors. I mean, he had the three-error game where he kind of banged his thumb up and, you know, committed three errors in an inning, and, and that was, you know, a huge burp, I think, in the you know, last month, month and a half of his defense. So yeah, I, I don't quite get why people are so people are, you know, in general in, in the abstract and based on comments and socks machine comments and Twitter and such, you know, so eager to move him off shortstop when Yohan Moncada, you know, right next to him is making the kind of mistakes that, you know, Anderson 
you know, had made and kind of eliminated from his game, you know, a month and a half ago. Yeah, Anderson has a 311 on base percentage. That's a significant increase from last year, uh, which is something that we hope to see. He's slugging 430. Abreu, is, his on-base percentage is 324, and Abreu is slugging 465. The fact that Anderson is just a few points behind Abreu in slugging, has more home runs than Jose Abreu, uh, I that's a bit alarming for Jose Abreu. Now, of course, Jose Abreu's got a ton of doubles. He's got 27, and he's on pace to break the all-time season record for the Chicago White Sox held by Albert Bell. Uh, but uh, right now, I, I'm really satisfied with the way that Tim Anderson has been playing. I think he's one of the biggest positives in the first half for the White Sox is the way that he's playing. And when you add in the 17 stolen bases and just how great he is against left-handed pitching, that you feel comfortable changing the lineup and having him lead off because he can make things happen. Uh, I'm really happy with the, pro- the progress that Tim Anderson has made. And uh, I-, I see the same things, Jim, and-, and I hear the same things as well as about, well, what about his defense? Well, what about his defense? He has improved. He, again, shows terrific range. Yes, he's not fundamentally sound throwing the baseball, but, you know, there's a lot of throws that he makes that I see Trey Turner make for the Washington Nationals as well. Um, so I, I hope people can can look by that. It's like talking about Tyler Flowers and the catching position, which we're going to talk about in a moment here, and people saying that, well, he was a dumpster fire because he couldn't hit. Well, you know who was a dumpster fire of a catcher? A.J. Brzezinski. A.J. Brzezinski sucked at catching. He could not block. He could not throw. He was a crap framer. A.J. Brzezinski could hit. And because White Sox fans know that he can hit, they say that he's a good catcher. Sorry, that's my rant for the show. But that's kind of how I feel about Tim Anderson. If Tim Anderson is a 25-25 player, Jim, people are still going to nag on his defense. Yeah, and, and you know, unlike Flowers, you know, because Pierzynski has, you know, he had a career. He made an impression on the White Sox fans. So I, I, you know, whether it's Flowers or anybody else, I didn't envy anybody who had to replace him. And the fact that Flowers' game looks so different from Pierzynski didn't make it any easier. But, you know, with Anderson, he's replacing Alexi Ramirez. And Ramirez really wasn't a fan favorite either for various reasons, like, you know, his aversion to contact at second base and kind of bailing on throws. And, you know, he was a fantastic defensive shortstop and offered a lot for the position and for what he was paid. And, you know, fans never really warmed up to him either. So I just think there's like this, for whatever reason, there's this kind of unattainable standard for shortstop play that I don't know who meets it aside from somebody who like makes six errors a season, doesn't get too much. But the fact that he, you know, that there aren't errors that can be attributable to him is fine enough. I really just don't get what, what kind of shortstop aside from say, um, Francisco Lindor, you know, is suitable. Well, yeah, Lindor's the best. So yeah. is it Ozzy? God, I hope not. Well, think about it. We complain about Arebe because I mean, Arebe, was... his offensive approach, while very fun, but can be frustrating and not, not that much different than Alexi Ramirez. And then Jose Valentin, which you bring up often about the amount of errors we should be ignoring the error amount because Valentin was actually really good at shortstop and maybe the White Sox shouldn't have moved him off that position didn't Valentin uh, Valentin replaced Mike Caruso who got hurt so we really never got a chance to see what he could do who was before Caruso at shortstop was it Guillen um what's your name was it Chris Snowpeck Craig Graybeck yeah so we're 
yeah, we're yeah. going to the dark ages, 1998, 20 years ago. Yeah. I don't know. I Do White Sox fans just want a gold glove shorts? Do they want Omar Vizquel? Is that what they're hoping for out of the position? Yeah, don't know. But, yeah, for whatever reason, yeah, I, I try to implore fans just to you know, enjoy an offensively capable shortstop who can cover ground. The errors are kind of secondary. He makes up for it. Next question is we got a little heated <laughs> about Tim Anderson. Uh, who was the best pitcher for the first half? Who was your pick, Jim? I think I'll go with uh, Reynaldo Lopez. No, Yeah, no disrespect to James Shields, who is providing a ton of value just by eating the innings. Like, I was surprised he's on pace for 216 innings, and that is really clutch for what this team has suffered, you know, in the other parts of the rotation and bullpen. So I do want to give him a nod for that, but when it came to performance and, and the kind of upside that Lopez provides, I think he's, he's one guy who's doing what he can right now. 48.7% agree with us, and they also picked Ronaldo Lopez. Jace Fry got the second most votes at 17.4%. So good pick. Jace Fry has impressed out of the bullpen. Uh, Dylan Covey got some as well at 11.4%, uh, but then James Shields was third at 16.2%. Are you concerned with the way that Rick Renteria handled Ronaldo Lopez today, having him throw 111 pitches? No, because, I mean, like, really the rough inning was in the fourth, and he looked pretty much under control, and, and the guy was, given how hot it was, it didn't look like he was breaking a sweat, um, given that right now I'm in an 80-degree house and sweating during podcasting. <laughs> I was <laughs> quite jealous of, you know, Lopez looking like he handled the heat well, so, you know, assuming that, uh, you know, it's not going to be a regular thing and that this was just happened to be a start where he could be pushed into one extra batter, and the seventh didn't mind it too much. And to answer the question before, yeah, it was Ozzy before Caruso. I thought there was a bridge shortstop for a year, but that wasn't the case. All right. So there we go. White Sox fans haven't gotten over <laughs> Ozzy Guillen at shortstop. And I was just, yeah, I was closing that loop just in case there's somebody at the, you know, listening to the podcast saying Ozzy was the shortstop in 1997 and just kind of screaming that in their head. <laughs> well, there you go. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for doing that. All right. Speaking of catchers. What grade would you give the White Sox catchers for the first half? I will start. F, your turn. Yeah, F. I'm I'm pleased by Kevin Smith. I don't want to, I don't want to drag him yes. into it because even though he hasn't thrown anybody out yet, the he's really minimized that in other ways by being offensively capable and catching a better game. But yeah, I think I, I would count Wellington Castillo suspension being part of his grade since that was a choice. <laughs> so yeah, I think. All in all, F, but Kevin Smith's doing what he can. Kevin Smith needs to catch Carlos Rodon. I'd like to see that, yeah. Do not care about the handiness of the pitcher for that game. Yeah, because, yeah, Narvaez has been has been brutal. He can't catch him. He cannot catch Rodon. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's Rodon's stuff or the way that's coming at Narvaez, but re-watching that fourth inning from Rodon's start on Saturday... Joe West did have a terrible strike zone, and I'm glad you called out Joe West on Twitter uh, and in the post about his garbage strike zone. But Narvaez didn't make it any easier for Joe West to call balls and yeah. strikes in that game. Whereas uh, on Sunday, Kevin Smith got the finally got the White Sox a lopsided strike zone in their favor, where the Rangers were the ones turning their heads and uh, kind of barking, and Jeff Bannister was yelling at uh, um, you know yell, yelling at home plate. But the White Sox were stealing strikes, and Kevin Smith was doing that. So. Um, 
yeah, I was curious watching Smith in spring training and, and watching the way, way the uh, league ran on him, you know, whether that would be some, you know, too fatal a flaw to, you know, that, that pitchers would just be uncomfortable working with him because they'd have to be, you know, whether it's, you know, quick pitching or, um, you know, slide stepping or doing things unnatural than hold runners. But so far, you know, there've been a few stolen bases, but nothing that really changes the tenor of the game with him behind the plate. Let's move to first base. I'm sorry. Uh, we both gave catchers an F. Uh, for you, the fans and listeners, uh, you were a little bit more genuine, generous uh, with your grading than Jim and I. You gave a D. 39% of you gave the catchers a D. 38.3% gave them a C. I do not know why you gave them that high, but that's what you guys went with. Uh, so majority of you, a D, and then just slightly below a C at the catching position. I could see a D if, if you factor in Kevin Smith heavily, but I just don't think he quite offsets uh, Castillo's damage so far. What grade would you give Jose Abreu for the first half? I'd give him a C. That's what I gave him. 55.8% gave Jose Abreu a B. 32.5% gave Jose Abreu an A. Maybe if we were just considering April and May... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if some of you haven't been watching June, bless you. I don't blame you. Uh, But yeah, 11% went with a C for Jose Abreu. I feel weird because I love watching Jose Abreu and I'm really rooting for him. And I will continue to vote for him for the All-Star game. But I also feel a little dirty, Jim, because I don't think he deserves it. (laughs) That's kind of where I am with the whole All-Star thing. Yeah, although the White Sox have had deserving starters in the past not get there because of voting, so they're overdue for one. There we go. Yes, makeup call. Moving to second base, this will be interesting. What grade would you give Yohan Makata for the first half? Give him a C-. minus. First full year, um, yeah, I tend to be forgiving that way, so... I grade him on a curve. Yeah, I I didn't do any minuses or pluses. I gave, I'm giving Yohan Makata a C. He's shown periods where really flashed his potential, and obviously he's been a struggle since. The arrow is down, though, at the moment, where if he doesn't progress, this could be a D for me at the end of the year. We need to start seeing some progression, and I am not satisfied with the level of play. What I don't think helps Yohan Mikata, and I had this conversation with Josh Friedman as I was on CLTV on Sunday evening, and Friedman brought up a good point, Jim. Juan Soto, Glaber Torres, those two are not helping Yohan Mikata because they are playing so, so well in a pressure situation with both teams trying to win very competitive division races and they are performing at a high level. And then you look at Yohan Makata and he's booting ground balls at second base for a team that's on pace to lose 106 games. That's fair. And I mean, with Makata, I think that there was always going to be a learning curve. That's why I'm, I'm kind of generous or, or forgiving just because he is a switch hitter. He's a switch hitter who strikes out a lot. He is a speed guy who is, you know, back to second base, but really, didn't have a position and and the way he played second base last year made it seem like oh he can be a fixture there this year it's a bit more confusing but um like like with anderson last year and all the stuff that anderson went through completely different for um you know his purposes but um with Moncada, it is his first full year um like i said september is when i think i 
you know, drop the curve and, and grade him on his merits and grade him on what he's going to look like for next year. And it would be lower if I didn't. It would be a D if I, just based on the strikeouts, not really, um, I guess the balance of hard contact versus strikeouts is no longer in his favor and the errors at, at uh, second base are are getting harder to forgive. But for the time being, um, and this might be the first time too he's meaningly, meaningfully struggled for a long time. You know, that's that's also something to learn. And it could change if he has a terrific July and August. Because I will defend, I will defend Yohan Mikata every single day. I get tweets. When can we start start calling Yohan Mikata a bust? It is far, far too soon for that. But I I think it yeah. is fair to say he is not playing at a level that I was expecting him to play after the first half of 2018, and it doesn't help judging him when you are watching the highlights of again Juan Soto and Gleyber Torres and just wondering how are they playing at this level and Mikata is not yeah it's you know I would say he's playing bust like but I I don't get the urge to you know what's the prize for writing somebody off the fastest guess you could wait two years for Nick Madrigal to see if he's any different yeah, maybe, but I mean, if that's the case, I think you just move Moncada to center field, or third, or third. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but uh, yeah, I just I, I don't get you know, I don't get why the word bust comes up already. Well, just the world we live in, Jim. Speaking of people who may want to call players bust, let's move over to shortstop to continue our wonderful conversation that we had about Tim Anderson. Uh, we'll keep this brief because you and I, Jim, both gave Tim Anderson our picks for best position player in the first half. Uh, but what grade would you give Tim Anderson for his first half? I'd give him a B. That's what I also give Tim Anderson. 51.7% of you also gave Tim Anderson a B. 39.3% gave Tim Anderson a C. 11.3% gave Tim Anderson an A. All right. Moving over to Yomer Sanchez at third base. What grade would you give Yomer Sanchez for the first half? Grading him on somebody who shouldn't be a full-time third baseman, I give him a B. I also gave Yomer a B. I think, by the way you said that, we may be on the same wavelength. Here are my thoughts about Yomer Sanchez. He is proving that he can play at third base every single day and play at a rate where defensively and the little bit that he hits, that he could be a three wins above replacement third baseman looking at the numbers comparing to other starting third basemen yomer sanchez is a below third baseman in major league baseball where the average third baseman is at a four and a half win level at third base for your starting third baseman and it is because you got guys like jose ramirez who are going to have an eight nine win type of season and obviously that drags out the average right he is not your future starting third baseman. And I think his role with the White Sox will be a super utility. But if the White Sox are serious about Yomer Sanchez being a starting third baseman, Yomer Sanchez has to hit a little bit more for me to be comfortable with that. But I do give him a B because he is holding his own at that position, starting every day there. And he is showing defensively that he can stick there with no issues. And he is hitting a little bit to be worth 1.8 wins above replacement 
at the first half level. Yeah, I think, you know, if he were on a team where he were he was, you know, easily the worst hitting infielder, then I think he'd be in good shape. Like even if you're a third base, if you're shortstop, second base and first baseman all hit, uh, you know, first baseman hit like he should and he had like an above average offensive shortstop, maybe he could get away with him. But I think if he's contending for, you know, the best, you know, the second best infielder on your team, then I think you're in trouble. So that's kind of how I grade infielders or, or outfielders as a unit. Like if he's the worst offensive outfielder, infielder, you're in okay shape. Um, but right now I think, you know, if you're counting on him to carry a third baseman's load, he's not there yet. Or maybe he won't get there. If I were a GM of a contending team, I would want Yomer Sanchez on my 25-man roster. Yeah. He can help a contending team because he can plug in gaps when you need him to, especially if you have an oft-injured middle infielder or corner infielder. Yomer Sanchez can help you. And I think he would be probably one of the more attractive position players that would actually be available either by July 31st or in the offseason to acquire Yomer Sanchez. I just don't think other teams think like I do regarding him. But I do think he can help a contender with his specific skill set. But again, like I mentioned, I don't expect any other team to trade for Yomer Sanchez. Uh, The other guy who's got a little playing time at third base, a little playing time at first base, but mostly at DH, is Matt Davidson. And I gave Matt Davidson a C for his first half, showing a little power. I think a lot of that is influenced by his play against the Kansas City Royals. Uh, But he's walking Jim. His on-base percentage is pretty good for uh, a lot higher than I was expecting. He's at 342, and he's currently leading the White Sox in that category. So that's why I'm giving Matt Davidson a C. How about you? Give him a B-. minus. A B minus. Just because I did not, you know, I thought he could have been DFA'd in the uh, spring training. (laughs) True. And the fact that he's, you know, he's made such strides with his plate discipline and the strikeouts and the kind of transformation he's made as a hitter, um, even if it's, you know, still doesn't lead to him being maybe a part of a contending team. um, You know, it's the kind of thing that gives you hope in other hitters making the same strides. So, um yeah, I did not expect this him to have the season, so I think you know, to have this kind of breakout and then give him a C, it's a little bit weird to me. But I, I figure stapling the minus on the B at least allows me to uh, say like, yeah, I, I get that he's not, <laughs> you know, not a complete player by any means. But I I do appreciate the improvement in such an unlikely fashion. The majority, fifty percent, so half of everyone that participated, uh, gave Matt Davidson a C. gave Matt Davidson a B. So good grades, much better than where he was last year. What grade would you give the White Sox outfield for the first half? I can start F. Your turn, Jim. (laughs) Yep. What the hell happened today in the outfield with Adam Engel and Charlie Tilson? Yeah, Tilson has been really confusing. Three days in a row with Blue He was doing so well. Yeah. Yeah. Is it just Arlington? Is it the sun? Well, no, he dropped the ball against, uh, in Chicago. So, Oh, that's right. That one happened on the warning track at, uh, guaranteed rate. 40, 40 and a half percent gave the White Sox outfield a D 38% gave the White Sox outfield an F. I'm not sure. Other than just being nice. 
what would think that the White Sox outfield should be a D. Yeah, maybe uh, you know, ignoring the injury or giving Avi recency bias credits. Because he has been hitting better, but yeah, just the fact that he was out and you had an, an outfield where it was plan C, E, and F, <laughs> I think. Yeah, just, uh, it's really hard when you had no depth to begin with, then you have to plumb the depth of that depth. Godspeed, outfield prospects. <laughs> Godspeed. Oh, all right, so moving away from the position players, grading the pitchers, what grade would you give the White Sox starting pitching for the first half? And I'm giving the White Sox starting pitching a C. James Shields, as you mentioned, is eating innings. I like what Ronaldo Lopez has done. Dylan Covey has showed spurts. Uh, and Carlos Rodon is Carlos Rodon. Uh, but how about you, Jim? What grade would you give the White Sox starting pitching? Give him a C minus. 46% gave the White Sox starting pitching a D. 41.2% gave it a C. Do you think the 46% could be possibly influenced by the struggles of Lucas Giolito and some of the early season struggles as well, like Miguel Gonzalez and Hector Santiago getting starts and Chris Volson. Yeah, Carson Fulmer. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part. I think, you know, the way I looked at it was like you have Shields pitching better than I imagined he would. Lopez a little better than I thought he would. Uh, Giolito pitching worse. You know, I just kind of weighed, you know, I guess the successes and failures and who was being projections. And I think with Rodon, not quite there yet, um, you know, with his uh, approach and, you know, maybe having a better catcher would help him. Um, you know, he's there and, and Dylan Covey, maybe looking like a pumpkin, uh, kind of knocked it down. Otherwise, I think if Covey were still kind of looking solid, you know, for five, six innings at a time and, and Rodon looked a bit better than, yeah, I could see it being a C. But I think right now I'm waiting to see whether Covey, um, you know, whether he has any staying power and whether Rodon can even out. But yeah, like you said before, having a better catcher for him, I think is the first step. What grade would you give the White Sox bullpen for the first half? I would give it a D. A D? I gave him a C. They have been pitching better. Well, the beginning of the part, the beginning of the season, they were terrible. Well, it's like there have been some successes and such, but I, I think it's hard to separate, um, the bullpen from I guess I looked at it in terms of like the yeah, I guess as a unit I would say see there have just been some big uh failures and gaps in the bullpen so yeah I'll change my grade and call it a C based on performance because they have been pitching well but just there have been some yeah I like I like Soria um you know he's been you know he's been kind of a revelation especially after uh you know dropping down and such but just been a big gap on the right-hand side. Nate Jones being out and looking rocky before that and Bruce Rondon collapsing and such. The right side, that whole setup man from the right side, maybe Juan Manaya stepping up, but that's that's why, you know, that kind of area of the bullpen I would give an F and so, you know, other successes and such. But yeah, maybe the left side has been good enough to compensate. So yeah, I'll change that to C. Do you think that James Shields will be traded by July 31st? Gonna say yes. Really? We talked about this on uh, Sox Machine Live. and Yeah, I, I'm thinking, you know, just, I, f- I forget who brought it up first, but I saw it on, you know, Twitter and on Sox Machine talking about how the Cubs would be a good fit. And given, you know, and then when I saw his innings total for the year, he's on pace for 216 innings. I think that has some value to a team, even if he's not going to be a playoff starter. 
the fact that he's you know throwing that many innings and giving you know, not just pitching five and a third or whatever, but pitching seven. Well, sixty-two point eight percent agree with you that James Shields will be traded by July thirty-first. By the way, backing up to the bullpen uh, for you, the listeners, you gave the bullpen a C, forty-three percent, twenty-six point five percent gave the bullpen a B. So very generous. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but yeah, 62.8% think that James Shields will be traded by July 31st. Do you think Xavier Cedeno will be traded by July 31st? I think so. I I'm, think so. Yeah, I, it's just a guess. I'm not quite... Yeah, I still want to see re- regression set in for him. I don't. Uh, I think he's been pitching... Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, like... Or, or whether it does, I should say. Um, hasn't been to that point where... Um, but yeah, like seeing him pitch today and, and given how hard... The bullpen has been worked recently. Kind of makes me wonder if, you know, regression will set in and not that it'll be Bruce Rondone, but that, uh, you know, he could have a similar thing to where he's not all that impressive as a left-handed reliever in, you know, maybe August. Even I, I think he'll be clean in August. So, yeah, I, I would say if he's moved, he's moved in July. I agree that James Shields and Xavier Cedeno will both be traded by July 31st. I would not be shocked if they're part of the same deal. Where team needs both, they both they need a, a lefty reliever, and they need James Shields to eat innings. Wouldn't wouldn't completely toss that idea out the window. Yeah, it's possible. We'll see. Crazier deals have been done. Do you think that Jose Abreu will be traded by July thirty first? Nope. Me neither. Ninety four point eight percent said no as well. Very few of you think that Jose Abreu will be traded by July 31st. Do you think that Eloy Jimenez will be called up before September 1st? I don't know. I haven't seen what his injury looked like. Like He left the uh, game tonight or uh, today uh, with a leg injury, apparently, but I, uh, the ML, MILB TV broadcast hasn't um, been active yet. Like It's still processing so i didn't see how he left the field and such so if it's an injury that costs him a significant amount of time like weeks then i would say no if he's able to come back relatively soon i would say august would be more likely i think it requires if avi can stay healthy if Aloy's fine which i'm completely ignoring his injury because ignorance is bliss gem <laughs> uh, <laughs> if avi were to get hurt again then yes, call up Aloy to play right field and take Avi's spot in the lineup. But if Avi's okay, I'm going to say no. And I know that the beginning of the year, I thought early August after the trade deadline, when preseason-wise we were talking about maybe Avi, if he has a good first half, he could be moved and Aloy Jimenez replaces Avisil Garcia in the lineup, very much like how Yuan Mercado replaced Todd Frazier when Frazier was traded to the New York Yankees. Uh, but obviously, Avi, I don't think he's going to get traded. Uh, thus, Aloy is going to have to wait until September call-ups. And again, the White Sox still have to make room for him on the 40-man roster. Um, it's disheartening. I wish that Aloy Jimenez was called up a lot sooner. But right now, my brain is telling me, Jim, after September 1st, which brings up, the next guy, do you think Michael Kopech will be called up before September 1st? Yes. I say no. Hmm. I say no because I think the White Sox are going to strain this out as long as they possibly can with him. 
I think if they trade James Shields, it'll be hard to justify calling up somebody else. Especially if there's one more injury to go along with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because Miguel Gonzalez is not in good shape. Yeah, he's he got called back from his rehab stint because his shoulder is acting up again. So I, I'm, I'm penciling... I guess I'm I'm erasing his name from being penciled in any second half plans. Yeah, 51.3% think Kopech will not be called up before September 1st. 60.2% believe Eloy Jimenez will be called up before September 1st. So more people think that Eloy Jimenez will join the White Sox before Michael Kopech. And then finally, Jim, over under 30 and a half wins in the second half for the White Sox. Over or under? Over. It better be over. <laughs> they better. Oh, I want them to avoid 100 losses. Get to win 63, please. For my sanity. Because I do not want to talk about a 106 loss team. Yeah, I think um, when it, in 2013 when they lost 99 games, I was rooting for 100 losses just because that season was so miserable. That 100 losses felt like a stamp they deserved. Um, but in this case, given how many of the players are are young and how many players are forced into situations you know, above their pay grades because of injuries and such, um, they're doing what they can in a lot of cases. They're just, you know... Um, underarmed for you know battle in the major league so yeah it's just it seems like yeah a little little too cruel but um you know if that's the case then at least there'll be a draft pick out of it hopefully <laughs> a draft pick in the top five for sure right now looking at three third overall behind baltimore and kansas city this concludes part one of this podcast if you are interested in listening to the second part with interviews from Will Carroll and Blake Rutherford, plus the minor league report and your questions in P.O. Sox, please now listen to part two in your podcast feed or on SoxMachine.com. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.